HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, a supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. For more information, visit corin.com. This week on Meet and 3, we're exploring the culinary wonders of urban New Jersey with a tour through Newark. We speak to Frank Mentesana at Phillips Academy Public Charter School. This idea of family style and made-from-scratch lunches continues to be a bit of an anomaly in the city. We also hear from Gil Speyer from All Points West Distillery. Newark used to have an incredibly rich beverage alcohol history. And we'll tour Aero Farms, the world's largest indoor vertical farm. We're growing using 390 times more productivity than field farming and 95% less water. Tune in to this week's Meet and 3 on Heritage Radio Network to be amazed at the wonders of Newark. That's meet plus sign T-H-R-E-E. Available wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, welcome to Japanese. I'm your host, Akiko Tema, a food writer, and director of the New York Japanese Culinary Academy, which promotes deep understanding of Japanese cuisine in America. We are broadcasting live from a studio at Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn. This show is all about Japanese food and food culture. We see sushi at every day in the supermarket, but what is beyond sushi? We hear dashi, ramen, izakaya, but what exactly are they? Japanese food is still a mystery for many people, so I'll try to demystify it in this program with my cool guests. And my guest today is Jeff Siretti, the author of Sakepedia, a non-traditional guide to Japan's traditional beverage. And Japanese sake is becoming popular in the U.S., which is now the biggest importer of the national beverage of Japan. But it is hard to find an easy and fun guidebook of sake. But Jeff's book is very handy for someone who is curious about, about sake, for both beginners and connoisseurs. So today we'll discuss why Jeff wrote the book, why you, uh, what you can learn from the book, and what he learned himself from writing the book, and much, much more. But quickly before we start, Japan is available on Heritage Radio Network website, as well as on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify as a podcast. So please go to iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify and subscribe to Japan Eats. And please write a review. We really appreciate your feedback. Also, if you have any ideas about the topics of the show or show guests, please let us know. You can email us at japanese at heritageradionetwork.org or akikokadema.com. 
Now let's start a conversation with Jeff Shoetti. Hello, Jeff. Welcome to Japanese. Hi, thanks for having me, Kiko. I really appreciate you having me. Yes, I was so excited. So I, first time I got the book in my hand, usually like, you know, one of those、um, books and I, I in one sitting, I skimmed everything through because、oh, wow. yeah, it's so unique. You just cover everything, even including、um, like, you know, East. Really <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I try not to get too technical about it because, you know, that can be a real snooze when people are talking about microorganisms.、Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, but I feel like, you know, you need people need to have at least some fundamental understanding of that part of it. So I, I wanted to make sure I included that, but in as fun a way as possible、yeah. without getting too sciencey. Right. So, so the, the point is, though, that even if you just never even tasted sake, you really enjoy it. And also, it's kind of like a little story book, too. Oh,、so. yeah, yeah. And, and I think that that's one of the things that really,、um, that really led me to write it was because so few people in this country, I mean, sake is growing here, but you know, it's a very, very small part of the alcohol market. And、um, I think the main reason why、uh, it's so you know, generally unknown is because people. Uh, don't know what to make of it.、Uh, people are intimidated by it.、Uh, they, they don't even really understand it. And I've been places where people are, aren't even aware that it's made from rice.、Mm. So they just think it's this weird thing with a lot of writing on it that they can't understand. So they're going to stay away from it. But, but once you taste it, once you drink it, and there's so many different styles, but you know, if you take a basic style, It, it's very, very accessible on, on the palate. I think it's probably an easier beverage to like. You know, let's say somebody has never tasted wine before, never, nobody's tasted beer or, or sake, and they wanted to try something. I, I, I truly believe if sake is the first alcohol beverage that they have, I think they will fall in love with it. And,、mm. and, and, but unfortunately, it doesn't have the market penetration that those other big beverages do.、Right. Yeah, something like you know, wine, to me, even like you know, diving into really cool, refreshing swimming pool or something, but the sake is like a blanket. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, it is. It is like a blanket. And it's also、uh, it's comforting in that way, too. I, I find it.、Um, and there are different sakes that I drink for different sort of occasions. You know, if I really just want refreshment, I'll go for something fruity and floral, like, you know, a ginjo. Or if I want something that just is exploding with really intense flavors, I'll go for a junmai, especially if I'm pairing it with like meat or something like that.、Mm. So, so th- I think there's something、uh, for every occasion, there's something for every palate. And I also feel like、um, there's also a misconception that sake's flavor is very, very narrow. And that's not true at all. I mean, it's basically as broad as wine and beer and other beverages. It's maybe a little more nuanced, but. Uh, there definitely is a very wide spectrum of flavor notes that you're getting.、Mm. Well, I really res- respect your comments because you have a, it's not just like you're an expert of all the beverages. So let me、um, start asking you about your background. So, where are you from originally?、Um, well, I mean, I grew up in New Jersey.、Um, I lived in you know, northern New Jersey for most of my life. I, I lived in Jersey City until about four years ago. And now I live in the Washington, D.C. area.、Um, and I used to be the editor of a magazine called Beverage World. I started there 
just over 16 years ago. And that's when I really started to immerse myself in beverage writing. Um, but I was writing about all beverages, alcohol and non-alcohol. And, you know, I, I was there as senior editor. Then I got promoted to editor-in-chief. And I was editor-in-chief for about eight years. And I just sort of fell in love with not all beverages, but sort of the alcohol side of the business. I mean, I, I had to write about the non-alcohol side, but I really did gravitate towards the alcohol side. First, it was beer. I was almost exclusively enamored of beer. And then I started, then I got into sake and then I got into spirits. But, but sake was just the one that, um, I don't know if it was because so few people knew it or because I went to a lot of Japanese restaurants, but I started just I just wanted to learn more about it and learn as much as possible. So then, you know, after leaving Beverage World, I started, uh, I was freelancing, uh, writing exclusively about alcoholic beverages. And then, you know, I started writing some books. I did The Year of Drinking Adventurously, then Beer FAQ, and then The Drinkable Globe. And then I pitched the sake book to my publisher. I, you know, I'd, I'd pitched like a number of different book ideas to them for my next book. And that was the one that I think that they were going to want the least. But then they turned around and they were like, um, no, we want we want the sake book. And I was I was thrilled because it was the one I wanted to write about the most. Because um, my other books, I, I, I hadn't really focused exclusively on one type of beverage. It was a lot of different beverages, with the exception of beer. But beer was a lot of different beverages, too. Mm -hmm. So um, so I was really excited to do that. But why do you think... Um you know, published it changed their mind to focus on sake. Well, um, I think it was just as simple as the owner of the publishing company, like the editor called me um, and they said, the owner, yeah, he loves sake. That's what he wants. <laughs> that, that was it. I mean, I don't think, I don't think there was a market strategy behind it. It was just, um, yeah. And, you know, he kind of saw it as like, oh, I want this to be something that you can, uh, you can update and we can do different editions of it over after a few years and that sort of thing. Cause he, I guess he saw a potential, on that front from a market standpoint, but I really think it was just, he just loves sake. So, mm. <laughs> which was, you know, good for me. Right. <laughs> you hit the right publisher. So. Yeah. <laughs> right. But uh, yeah, it's interesting, right? Because there are some, so many now sake experts, you know, John Goldner. Oh yeah. Yeah. You know, raised some, so many experts, but when it comes to books, it's, it's hard to find a good English books. So. Yeah. I thought that, um, that was the one thing that I really, um, I wanted to make it, and then that's where sort of the non-traditional part, where I call it the non-traditional guide to Japan's traditional beverage. Um, it's because I, I want to have that approach where the approach of making it approachable, where I want it to be, uh, I don't want there to be any pretense about it. I don't want any of the language to be, you know, stilted or, or academic or anything like that. I just want it to be... I want to take the reader along on my own journey that, you know, in my own discovery of it and how excited I am. And I hope my passion for it comes through because I'm trying to be inclusive and I'm trying to make more people like sake. Whereas, you know, in some, and I'm not saying this is true of all wine books, but there is a certain sector of wine writing where it's very exclusive. It's very, mm. um, you need to be in the know, you know, it's sort of, I don't want to use the term elitist, but it, it, I'm not saying wine is elitist, but certain sectors of wine writing, it's it's mainly to be exclusive. I right, want to it's be, like the aristocratic. Yeah, versus the exactly. Democratic. Yeah, the, the, if there's like a beverage aristocracy, you need to come up with a term, but that's that's what it is. And I didn't want that to be. I wanted this to be 
I wanted uh, beer drinkers and I wanted wine drinkers uh, to come to sake. That's what it was. And, and I try to make it appealing on both fronts because, you know, obviously sake has got a lot more in common in beer than people realize. And, and it's a lot. It's it's not a wine, even though people call it rice wine. But there are certain flavor elements that might be appealing to somebody who likes white wine and that mm. sort of thing. So I really want it to be about, you know, hey, uh, here's a really fun beverage that you can learn. And it's it's an exciting journey. Mm. Right. So, um, you know, knowing that, you know, all the other types of alcoholic beverages, what is so special about sake? You know, you said the flavor diversity and approachable aspects of it but is it the the occasion that's so versatile or yeah see it's the whole it's the whole package you know there's you know there's a certain ritual to pouring it there's um it's the fact that it is it does pair so incredibly well with a lot of different foods um so you know for instance most of the time you're it's you're going to find it mostly in Japanese restaurants or, or general Asian restaurants, like in the U.S., I mean, not a lot of non-Asian places carry sake as far as restaurants go. So by default, you're really going to be drinking it with Asian food, even though it pairs amazingly well mm. with all kinds of Western foods. But um, but the the great part about it was that it, it paired well with so many things that it was it was hard to have a bad pairing. You can like for wine. And even beer, to some extent, you can have a pairing go horribly wrong. It just doesn't work. Now, sake, some things pair better than others with it, but um, there's really no food pairing that's a complete failure yeah, with any style of sake. So that, forgiving. Yeah, right? forgiving is the term, yeah. Right. Um, well, this is a kind of like, um, you know, I just throw in this question. I wanted to always ask you since I read your book. So why do you think people drink alcohol? Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, there's so many reasons, right? Social, yeah. taste, mm -hmm. relaxation, of course, like intoxication. Yeah, like, yeah. Well, see, the thing is, um, and I'll, I'll take it from my own experience drinking alcohol. My, my, my relationship with alcohol has, has evolved since, you know, I've been drinking, let's say, going back to college. And whether, you know, I was, I'm not going to say what age I was because <laughs> it, it wasn't legal. But <laughs> right. um, yeah, in college, it's all about intoxication. I didn't care what I was drinking. Um, and I was drinking the cheapest beer that you could find and, and whatever. I got a little older, you know, you get in your 20s. It's like, oh, I need to start drinking some grown up beverages. And then I was like ordering things like gin and tonics and whatnot. And I was trying to learn more about wine, but, you know, I really wasn't doing such a good job. And then when, um, and then, you know, in my 30s, I was, I was at Beverage World and, and that sort of accelerated my own appreciation for things because I was learning a lot and, and being exposed to it at trade events and uh, through press releases and things like that. And people were sending me loads and loads of free product. Um, so then I, I gravitated towards beer, and then I realized, wow, this is great. Beer can taste phenomenal. So now it's going to become about uh, the the journey, the flavor, the the sort of the drinking ritual, and that's kind of how I've personally. That's my reason for drinking. Like, yes, it's a social thing. It's and it's a discovery. It's like I want to, you know, I'm I'm known for 
um, if I'm out drinking with people, a lot of times they'll have like three beers and I'm still on my first. And I'm the same way with sake. I'm the same way with everything because I'm just sitting there just thinking about every sip. You know, I'll be writing down what I'm thinking. And it's just I just want this is all part of my journey. It's all part of that ritual. It's all part of that social experience. And so for me, that's what drinking is now. I mean, a lot of people share that and I'm, I'm sure that, but you know, people drink for different reasons, but, but I think it is, it is the flavor. It is the adventure. It is, uh, just the comfort and, you know, and it does relax you too. Mm. So that's sort of, I don't, I don't drink to the point of intoxication now, but yeah, I will, start to feel a little more laid mm-hmm. back and relaxed when I'm drinking. Right. So. I think socially people tend to punish um, kind of the act of drinking sake because people drink for the sake of drinking, not yeah. knowing why. But uh, I realized myself, like when I know the history or background of sake or wine or anything produced, I sip more slowly and think about it. So it's, it's more about... I mean, I can just maybe have a nice cup of tea yeah. in tea bag, which may have great history, but I really appreciate that fermented flavor, that nuance, and it's it's different depending on which bottle or oh, yeah, vintage yeah. diversely. And kind of like I feel romantic about it. Yeah, and it's just so much history and tradition in it that, and really any alcohol beverage, and I think that... Um, no other non-alcohol category really has that. Like when you're talking about um, non-alcohol beverage history, you're talking about soft drinks. Okay, late 19th century. That's how far back they go, mm-hmm. you know, because um, mainly because for the longest time, most people weren't drinking non-alcohol because it, the water would kill you. So <laughs> that's why alcohol exists. <laughs> so, um, but so I, I think it's, it's that it's the history, it's your tradition. It's, um, it's just, it, you're just thinking about so much and you just want, it, it just raises so many questions and you just want to learn so much more with every sip that you take. And mm. that, that's, that's the way that I, I think, I mean, that's the way I drink. And I just think that people should, drink and I don't drink for the sake of drinking I, I you know if I, I specifically want something that I know that I'm going to enjoy or if I haven't had before and I want to discover it mm. um, I really want every sip I take to be an adventure mm, right. I can't agree more yeah so um, so so by the same token, it's important to know the background of what you're drinking. And now let's talk about your book. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, so the title is The Sakepedia, A Non-Traditional Guide to Japan's Traditional Beverage. And it's, it's, it's non-traditional guide, but it's very traditionally covered, too. So I oh, really yeah, appreciate yeah. it. So, um, so what, what can we learn from the book? Um, you can pretty much learn... Uh, Everything from what exactly sake is to which sakes go with which foods, you know, to, you know, know, there's history. You can't write a book about sake without writing history. So there's a little bit of that, Um, you know, and there's a there's a little bit of geography, too, because sake is very regional. Um, So I try to highlight the major sake producing regions and what they're sort of local traditions are what their local flavor profile is you know 
not everybody necessarily has a very specific flavor profile, but you get to a place like Niigata and it's very, that whole refreshing, crisp, um, you know, it's, it's just the notion of like mountain sake because you think of snowy mountains and that's sort of the flavor profile of sake you get. Mm. So you kind of, you, you can't think about sake without thinking of it in the context of its geography as well as its history. So it's, it's a little bit of everything. And I also have, um, you know, there are a few things on there. Like I, I, I do profile some new American sake producers as well because there's sort of a burgeoning craft sake movement here. So I, I highlight some of those. It's not comprehensive because they're opening up every day and some are closing. So it's <laughs> sort of, so there's that. And then there's also, I highlight some of the my favorite places to drink sake all over the U.S. and you know, mm. I, and I and I do talk about my my travels in Japan as well and and places to drink there. But I you know I wanted to make it accessible for uh, the American drinker so they don't actually have to leave the country to have really great sake. Mm. Right, I think that's kind of psychological barrier. It's been existed because. It's just really, you don't understand what's written on the label and it's really oh, yeah. far away, which is kind of uh, this mystery part that's attractive, but by the same token, why then do you have to drink here in this country, right? So, yeah, I really think uh, it's really comprehensive, but not just, you know, you introduce the, say, type of sake and yeah. this is what it is. You explained so well and also examples of what kind of sake that you can actually try and taste it, so... Yeah, and I was impressed how comprehensive the book is. So, how did you gather all that information? Um, from a lot of different places. I mean, some of it was from traveling in Japan. Uh, some of it was from I took uh, sake class with the Sake School of America. I got my uh, sommelier certification through them. And, wow! <laughs> um, I I took I took two classes. I did the, both levels that they do the, the sake advisor and then the certified sake sommelier. Kikasakishi. Um, so I, I did that. Um, you know, I, I traveled not not just traveling in 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 Japan, but I travel all over the U.S. as well. So I, I always sort of gravitate towards the best izakayas and places like that to really mm. discover it. And you know, I spent a lot of time in Portland too. And Portland's got supposedly nobody's actually verified this number, but they say that it's the highest per capita consumption of sake outside of Japan wow. in Portland. So oh. so Portland's got some great places like that. So it's really and the best part about that is Portland. Unlike a lot of other places, just about anything you can get by the glass when you go into a restaurant. Whereas in a lot of other cities, you have a couple house sakes and then the rest is by the bottle. And most of the time, people don't want to have to commit mm. to buying a whole bottle, especially sometimes they're like $72 for a bottle. So I, I think that's been a real barrier to sales. But a place like Portland, you can really try a lot of sakes without really mm. having to commit to a bottle, especially if you're alone. You don't want to have to buy a bottle if you're alone. Right. So, so is it because there's a sake one that's an Oregon, yeah. the local winery, and the, the sake brewery, and also that's the culture of uh, the wine country. Maybe you enjoy everything by the glass. Yeah, yeah. It's um, they, they really, um, I think they've had a really good effort too from the importers and distributors who've, who've trained basically account by account, you know, how to serve sake and how, um, you know, how, yeah, you can serve it by the glass because, I mean, one of the biggest things, like, yeah, they do have like a huge uh, wine culture out there, but 
sometimes that has gotten in the way because yeah, people are so incredibly well versed in serving wine. They think sake has for lack of a better term, the same shelf life that wine does. So for instance, if you open a bottle of, um, of a red wine or whatever, you know, you, you pretty much, you're opening a fast mover. You're going to sell, you're going to empty that bottle before the end of the night because you can't really keep it that long or it's not mm. going to be good. But with sake, you can open a bottle and as long as you're keeping it at the right temperature, uh, you can have that bottle open for like three months mm. and it's still going to taste exactly the same. So, so you don't, I, I don't, restaurants don't have to worry about, oh no, if we open this, we have to sell it by the bottle because we're never going to be able to finish this bottle off if people are right. buying it by the glass. But, you know, you open it and if people were buying the glass of a 720 milliliter bottle over the course of three months, you can easily empty that bottle. Right. Yeah. So, and that's, that's the one thing they have to sort of unlearn. And when I say they, I mean the, the restaurants and bars, they need to unlearn some of the things they've learned about wine because the same rules do not apply to sake. Mm, right. Well, that's a, actually, it's a big advantage of sake, right? Because I, you know, I get the bottle of sake and it's, of course, you can't finish. So, and then I think uh, sometimes the glass tastes better in three days later or something. And yeah, change. <laughs> well, the thing is like, yeah, you, you're also, um, it could be, you could have had something different to eat that day that may still be lingering and that could be giving you a different experience. I mean, I mean, every time you drink anything, I've never tasted anything that tastes exactly the same the second time I had it. And I think just a lot of it has to do with circumstances, the environment, um, the mood you're in, you know, mm. it could be any number of factors. So, right. That's true. So, but I didn't know that, uh, that the specific Oregon or Portland is the, yeah, it is. Day. It really is. And it's, uh, I'm actually flying there again tomorrow. So oh, it's, wow. yeah. <laughs> awesome. So, but also you visited uh, Shimi, uh, the Kyoto area. Oh, yeah. Niigata too. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So how, how did you, you just uh, made an appointment? Yeah, I, I reached out um, to some friends. Uh, you, you, you know, you've had, have you had Jamie Graves on the show? Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's, he, I reached out to him Um and he had just started working for Skernick at that time. And I said, hey, I'm I'm finishing up my book. And I, he's interviewed in the book. And he, he actually helped me a great deal on the book. Um, and I said, you put me in touch with anybody uh, that, you know, you can sort of uh, just show me around. Maybe just let me in a couple of, of sake breweries. And then he, he reached out to his contact in Niigata who basically put together an entire itinerary for me and yeah. you know people welcomed me with open arms they just let just me and my wife was with me we just walked we, we've toured got the really really extensive tours we had dinner with them and it was just um so that that was just a fantastic experience uh, so actually Niigata you know they have an annual sake two-day event oh yeah right like twenty dollars and then you can drink as much as possible there are like 90 breweries attending participating oh. and at per brewery they have like two or three labels so oh, wow there at the outside there's an ambulance waiting for just in case but it's and it's, it's all you can drink <laughs> yeah but I, I think that event connects annually closely the oldest breweries in the prefecture oh yeah and uh of course they developed uh, the specific uh niigata tanle like you mentioned earlier like cleaner yeah. crispier sake so that's like a regional it's beyond terroir. They yeah. have like a community feeling in Niigata. 
And of course, their sake is so high quality too. Well, one thing that was interesting uh, uh, going to a lot of the places in Niigata is a lot of the brewers uh, were intent on um, producing something that didn't necessarily fit with the Niigata style. Like mm. every time I sat down, they'd be like, this one has a little more umami to it than a Niigata style. It's because I think they're really, part of that has to do with, like for instance, also say like this one pairs well with a hamburger. And part of that has to do with, they, they recognize the U.S. market as a major export market since, you know, consumption has been on the slow, steady decline in Japan. So we're probably their top market outside of that. So, you know, they they want to differentiate themselves and they want to make it more appealing to, you know, the types of foods that that we hear and everything like that. So mm. it, was, it was just more of like a, a marketing decision than anything else. But it was interesting because almost everywhere I went, they were the sort of the recurring theme was uh, this. This one is not the Niigata style. This one has more umami and this is, you know, mm. this goes well with hamburgers. It's sort of the, right. the key well, thing. In other words, though, that the global market really is inspiring traditional industry and then you know, the traditional sake producers are waking, waking up like, oh, wow, there's a demand. For oh, this. yeah. Like sparkling wine is a good example, right? And I think uh, sparkling sake, sorry, sparkling sake is becoming popular in Japan as well. So, oh, yeah. Yeah, so it's, uh, it's always good to have this global inspiration and stimulus. Oh, yeah, no, it's, it's I mean, I, I just love that... Um, you know, I love that that the U.S. market is helping keep the Japanese market going. I mean, I think that more people need to discover it because I love I love visiting those those breweries that have been in their families for six generations, and it's um, and the fact that you know I, I always kind of see this kind of boomerang effect that happens. It's it happened with beer where. Uh, the country of origin influenced what was going on in the U.S. That's how craft beer was born. And then in turn, those countries, you know, mostly Europe and whatnot, they started um, adapting some of those traditions that Americans had adapted themselves. So mm. so now I, 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 I hope to see that happening in Japan where, um, you know, the American market wakes up and then it drives the home market again and a new generation of people in Japan start to gravitate towards sake again. Right. I think, I, I think I've already seen it happening because, you know, just the, the people that I've gone out drinking with there. So mm. it's, it's kind of, um, I've, I've seen an embrace of it, which, which is exciting. Cause like, you know, you hear it a lot and this is like with every category, it happens here with, with bourbon and, and gin and everything else where it's like oh that's what my grandfather drank yeah so for a while in japan i think it was similar to that wasn't it was it people just kind of like oh sake you know my my parents my grandparents drink it i'm more into beer i'm more into whiskey now so i think um but i think now younger generations start appreciating more what mm. goes on what went on with their 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 grandparents, great grandparents, were drinking. So right, it's, it's, it's actually a cool drink. Yeah, it is. It is. <laughs> right. Okay. So, um, yeah. So let's take a quick break here, and when we come back, we'll talk um, hear Jeff's uh, thoughts on artisanal sake breweries outside Japan. So please stay with us. It's like one minute. <laughs> 
Today's program is brought to you by Corin, a supplier of Japanese ship knives and restaurant supplies. Corin is part of their Japanese culture and traditions, but they want you to know that their products are not just for Japanese restaurants. Their knives and tableware bring out the best qualities of food from every culture and fit into every restaurant, from French to Pan Asian to American, and that is why they are located in New York City, where people from every country in the world come to eat. Corin's Tribeca showroom is home to the most extensive collection of Japanese chef knives in the world, including Japan. Stop by to view the exquisitely designed tableware and the wireless natural sharpening stones. They have a whole range of knife services, from repair and rust removal to reshaping and realigning. Corin is dedicated to this ideal, bringing the highest quality Japanese design to your table so you can experience the unparalleled quality of Japanese craftsmanship in your home or restaurant. For more information, visit corin.com. Are you enjoying our podcast? Heritage Radio Network has lots more. I'm Ethan Frisch. And I'm Jenny Dorsey. And together we host Why Food, a podcast about innovators, career changers, and entrepreneurs who are changing the face of food. How did these folks decide to hit the brakes, start over, and become inspiring chefs, entrepreneurs, farmers, and activists they are today? Browse episodes of Why Food wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome back. You're listening to Japanese Broadcasting Live from a studio in Bushwick, Brooklyn. I'm your host, Aki Kotema, and my guest today is Jeff Soretti, the author of, uh, author of the Sakepedia, a non-traditional guide to Japan's traditional beverage. So we're talking about traditional and modern kind of transition. So in Sakepedia, uh, you quote words from uh, Sakewan, uh, the Oregon-based breweries, in, and uh, and the CEO says that traditional Japanese brewers tend to think, make the sake, and hope people like it, versus figure out what the consumer needs, make a sake to fit that need, and make a label to reflect that. So do you agree that the, that's still the mindset of traditional sake brewers in Japan? Um, no, I don't think. I mean, I, I think my, my sort of view changed a bit when I visited a lot of them because as I was saying, you know, earlier, I think that, um, people are making things with an eye towards changing markets and changing palettes and, um, different cultures in different countries. So, um, I think they're more attuned to, um, diverse tastes. I mean, you know, back in the day, um, you know, for instance, you're in, in, uh, in Kyoto or, or, or Niigata, you know, your, your sake didn't really travel much beyond your region. So you were really just making it for those palates, you know, and now the market is a lot more complicated. It's a lot more global. Um, even, even throughout Japan, tastes are so varied. And I think that they're just more attuned to what changing demographics want and they still make you know the the sakis that made them famous their own you know whether you call them a flagship or whatever that that's they're still making those but they are branching out more with different uh flavor experiences mm-hmm. so i mean i don't think it's as it's it's not as sort of narrow as that once was right so do you have any examples of um you know more progressive open-minded style of sake brewers 
Oh boy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, let's see. I think someone like uh, Akima Noi. Um, a lot of these are going to be in Niigata because that's where I spent the most amount of time. Uh, uh, and I'm going to butcher the names. I'm not going to pronounce them right. Uh, Tamano Hikari, is that right? Yeah, yeah. Tamano Hikari. Hikari. Right, right. Yeah, I think they're they're doing great things. And now I can't remember uh, who the brewery is that makes Cowboy Yamahai. Do you know that one? Hmm. No, I don't. <laughs> um, it's in my book, and I should have. I I should know this. It's <laughs> slipping my mind at the moment. But the um, the brewery there that that is something that is just a. I mean, just like the name suggests, you know, cowboy. Mm. It is a it is a wild sake, right. and I fir- I first had that in the train station in Niigata, and um, there's. Have you ever seen these? This, this place called Panchokan. It's a when you get like a hundred different sakes where you put in a coin and then you'd get a taste and everything. Yeah. So that was the first time that I had it. And, mm. um, so, and I've been happy cause I've been seeing it a lot more in the States. So it's, I, I, I'm glad for that because it's in the book and, and people, mm. but you know, it's killing me that I'm not remembering the name of the brewery. Well, well you wrote the book a long time ago. So. <laughs> <laughs> right. But actually how, how, how long did it take? Like two years to, um, okay. It took, took about a year to write it um and then there's revisions and things like that and mm. be, you know between the researching the writing and the revising it was probably about two years yeah right so because you have to travel a lot so. yeah so right okay and uh so the you also introduce in your book non-traditional ways to enjoy sake including cocktails like maybe you can just tell oh. <laughs> I, I uh, full disclosure, I'm not a fan of sake cocktails. Okay. <laughs> um, you, you'll notice that the um, the section was very short, um, but I felt like um, it had to be in there because they do exist. Sake cocktails do exist, and and you know, um, I'm a I'm a traditionalist when it comes to drinking sake. I don't want anything in it, you know. Um, but you know, the things like. You know, sakatini is the easy one, um, and there are different iterations of that. I mean, some are more sake forward, others are more gin forward. Some don't have any gin in them at all. Sometimes it's just sake and uh, umeshu that you pour in in place of the of the vermouth. So mm. it's just like things like that. And because you you put it in a in a martini glass, you call it a sakatini, but it, it bears very little resemblance to it. Right. But you know, you do some where it's like. You might have one ounce of gin and two ounces of sake, and then um, you still have the vermouth in there too. So, I mean, something like that. My my thought on on sake cocktails is, as long as the flavor of the sake is still coming through, and um, and it's not one of the more uh, you know delicate or more nuanced sake, then then yeah, I mean, it's fine. To put in a cocktail, and and, and I embrace it from the standpoint that when, when you look at spirits, for instance, the way most people, ex, you know, first discover spirits is through a cocktail before they become somebody who drinks something neat. So mm. you can say the same thing about sake. It's like if this is going to be their way into sake, where they try it in a cocktail, it comes through in a cocktail, and they're like, okay, now I want to try this on its own, then. 
and that's great that cocktails are able to do that the bartenders are able to do that but i feel like the end game needs to be getting people to appreciate sake on its own mm. rather than oh i i've got this new sake cocktail that is my new new go-to cocktail but i'm i have no interest in drinking sake on its own so right. i think it's like you know um like a spicy tuna bowl kind of thing yeah, before, yeah. Get, before you get to the end of my you know real sushi exactly yeah you know you're not going to be you're not doing the the uni quite yet right. but <laughs> yeah so yeah i, I think um uh, you know, it's it's always nice to have a nice uh, entrance door, right? But uh, so I really want to ask you about, you know, sake breweries mm. in the U.S. Now they're more in Europe, too. Yeah. Outside Japan, there's sake breweries, like, you know, Brooklyn Sake. And uh, so what do you think about them? I think there's some amazing stuff happening here. And, and it's a very recent phenomenon. Um I think with the exception of Sake One, it's always been making amazing stuff. I, I, I truly believe that Sake One is the sake brewery that uh, it's the gold standard of American sake breweries. Mm-hmm. It's like that's I think everybody should be striving to be as good as they are. That's kind of been my feeling. And then uh, for a while, they were pretty much the only game in town that was really doing anything any good because mm. uh, a, a few breweries have come and gone and some weren't making very good stuff at all. And so I didn't really have high hopes for a lot of new sake breweries. But in the past two to three years, I've finally tasted stuff with, with people who've, who've opened up in the past two to three years that they're doing incredible things i mean and i can i'll name names here with some of my favorites brooklyn quarter yeah of course they're they're incredible um and i'm using that word incredible a little too much um <laughs> brooklyn quarter um i would also say sequoia in san francisco mm. they're doing really good stuff proper sake in nashville huh. that they're just phenomenal um and i don't want to forget anybody who else i know there's one more that i usually usually go to oh uh moto e or moto i think it's i thought it was moto e but somebody tried correcting me saying it was moto i well i just yeah i assume they were using a japanese pronunciation so right. it's but i the person who corrected me could have been wrong it wasn't somebody from the brewery but okay <laughs> but in, in in minnesota they're they're really good as well um so they're just they're starting to pop up in in different places and unexpected places too like i would have never thought um, one of the best sake breweries in the country mm. is in Nashville, you know? <laughs> so. Right. Yeah, it's a, well, it, you know, the craft beer trend, like you said earlier, um, sake is more close to beer. Yeah, exactly. So, like, and everybody's talking about now fermentation, and it's kind of a good extension from craft beer to oh, it sake. Absolutely is, right? yeah. It's a little more complicated process. I, I think you, yeah, I mean, I think um, you also get a lot of former beer people getting into sake brewery, you don't, brewing. You don't seem to get as many former wine people doing it. Mm. And you don't, yeah, I mean, um, I think, uh, you know, even you even do have some breweries that make that make a sake or they'll they'll do a, a beer with sake rice you know mm, that sort of thing right. so, so there's definitely a kinship there um and also you know just the 
there's an appreciation for the role that the microorganisms play, whether it's the yeast or the koji. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially when you get some of the brewers who are like real fermentation geeks, you know, they'd never worked with koji before. And so it's just the sort of the prospect of that is probably something that also pulls them in the sake. So mm, Koji, my prediction, it's going to be a big deal. I hope <laughs> so. I hope because I think that um, I want it to be enough of a big deal here where you've got, you know, the yeast labs that are supplying to the brewers start make you know having that in a big way so they don't have to keep sourcing it from japan and, mm. and whatnot so i think that uh, it, once it becomes one once more and more of these breweries start i think we will start seeing more of a of a koji i won't say koji boom but you know mm. just a kind of a, a growth and you know just a, a market for koji here i think we, we probably need at least 20 or 30 more sake breweries to open up in the u.s before that happens right. but <laughs> right um okay so um you know, it's a lot of work to write that book, and I really appreciate your great job. What did you learn through the process of writing Sakepedia yourself? Um, well, one of the things that I learned was uh, to forget everything I had learned before, <laughs> because I there are a lot of myths and misconceptions with sake, and I spend a lot of time trying to dispel those. But I had my own misconceptions, too. Um, you know, for instance... It's not necessarily just Junmai and Futsushu that you can drink warm. There have been times when I've had Daiginjo warm. You know, I've had Ginjo warm. Uh, and it's from the the brewers themselves. They'll, they'll, they'll taste, they'll like, here, taste this. And then they'll have a little kettle on, on the fire. And they're mm-hmm. like, okay, warm this up a little bit. Now try it. And, and these are uh, really, it's hard to pigeonhole one particular style of sake it's like and to make a blanket statement about this needs to be warm this needs to be cold and and Mm. i think that that just kind of blew my mind because i had my own misconceptions about it Mm. so i and also i think uh, depending on uh the vintage or the type of rice they try and they realize that oh wow and you know that's the warming sake kanzake have different levels of temperature so oh yeah yeah they seems like they were playing with the temperature and, and how they serve so well i mean especially if there's more umami in it i mean you know the the sort of traditionally and you can make generalizations about you know junmai ginjo daiginjo um you know generally a daiginjo is going to be delicate and floral and Ginjo, you're more often than not going to find it to be on the fruity side, and then Junmai, you're going to find it to be on the umami side. But, but you know, I found Dai Ginjos and and Ginjos with lots and lots of umami in them, and heating it up actually, uh, uh, an umami forward sake benefits from heating because mm. it it opens up. It's uh, succinic acid, I think, is the acid that that actually responds well to heating whereas you can't you can't heat something that's fruity or floral that's going to destroy the flavor but if it's if the dominant note is umami Mm. you can heat it and you have a completely different experience oh wow so it's a good with entree more heavy yeah exactly umami oriented foods oh wow that's good to know so um okay so how do you predict the future of sake in you know the global market i think I, I think it's going to keep growing. I think uh, 10 to 20% globally. Um, 
I think it's going to level off in Japan and start growing again soon. Because um, it's 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 declining, but it's declining like two or three percent a year. It's not a huge decline. Mm-hmm. And and as I said, as more younger generations start to reappreciate it, I think um, I think it's going to start to swing up in Japan as well. So I, I can see, you know, between ten and twenty percent, fifteen percent. I think is going to be the year on year growth. Um, and I also see you're you're going to start having more breweries in countries you would not expect. I mean, like we've got one in Mexico now. You know, Mexico City has a has a brewery. It's like one of the last places you expect to make sake, wow. but but Mexico City. And you know, there's there's one in Canada. Um, somebody was telling me, I don't know if I somebody told me there's one in Italy, or I'm confusing it with something else. But um, but they're starting to pop up, and you know, they're not huge by any means. But the fact that people are embracing it and people are embracing it in non-traditional places um, and making stuff that's as good as some of the stuff coming out of Japan. I mean, I think there's a real future there. Mm. It's just, I, I can't stress the need for education enough and people familiarizing themselves with it. Cause that's the biggest barrier right now. It's right. just education. Mm. Yeah. I'm concerned about the declining number of psychobreweries. I think people say the operating ones only around 1000. Yeah. That sounds and about right. So, and I, I think a lot of them produce sake only once a year yeah. seasonally, but if the demand increases, they can, I, th- I heard there's one brewery that they're like mom and pop, young couple. And this I guess, started to become very popular. So they started to switch to twice a year production. Oh, yeah. And they have to adjust everything because oh, yeah. it's, you know, the t- summer temperature. But their business is sustaining. So I think the demand goes up. Even if there's, there's no more, you know, sake breweries by, by the number. But if the money goes more flow into each brewery, the industry grows, stays stronger. Oh, absolutely. And yeah, the vitality, I think we have to maintain. Yeah, I mean, you'll see, you'll probably see consolidation among some breweries more than you will see any breweries actually close. Mm. Um, so I think that's what ends up shrinking the numbers. And But as, you know, if if that demand starts to pick up again in, in Japan, we might start seeing new breweries opening up just as they are here like mm. in, in various places. Um, I mean, I remember the sort of the, uh, in Niigata, we were seeing some of these breweries at 400 something years old. And then we went to one, we opened a hundred years ago, they said, and we're the babies, you know? Yeah. So. <laughs> right. Mm, I didn't know that all those are uh, the increasing number of mergers and acquisitions. Well, there've been some, yeah. I mean, some, uh, I think in a lot of ways you'll have, breweries buying other breweries within their regions and stuff and and i mean it's it's you know it keeps them keeps their brands alive keeps them uh viable in any way that they can do that that that's great i would rather see them keeping their beverages alive than and some of some of them actually too have started making craft beer they still make sake but there are some that have doubled up and have been Mm. making craft beer to satisfy that growing need right so yeah financially they're supporting themselves that's great yeah um yeah so um i know you're doing a lot of stuff so are you gonna keep following sake oh yeah 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 yeah. i mean i i um you know again i'm i'm still touring with this book again i'm going to portland to do a couple of signings for it and and because 
Um, there aren't a lot of people writing about it. I feel like this is something that I can really specialize in. Like, I, I sort of left beer writing because that's too saturated. Everyone's writing about beer, and I don't think I have anything new to tell. The beer writers are doing amazing jobs doing what they're doing, and I, I, I don't have anything new that they don't already know. So, uh, But sake is somewhere that I can really, really specialize in. Sake is always going to be my the beverage that's close to my heart. So if the more I can write about sake, the better. If I, if I could think of another idea, I would love to do another sake book. Mm, that'd be great. Yeah. But I just have to think of it. I have to think of a specific angle that's marketable. So that's right. like, <laughs> yeah. Well, keep me posted. Well, thank you. Uh, and also cool. I think the younger generation of sake, you know, like how many generations ago they started the company, but younger generations utilize more social media. Oh yeah. And come yeah. to, you know, global market to sell, in person so i think uh, that's a big future maybe you can work with them i hope so yeah right? that'd be fantastic yeah okay so what's your plan I, I heard you working on something new as well oh well as far as a couple things really i am um i just took on a new role as the editor-in-chief of a digital magazine that the american craft spirits association is launching i'm i'm on staff now at the american craft spirits association we're hoping to get the publication up and running by the end of June. Um, so that's see, that's all f about spirits, uh, craft spirits. Um, and then I also, I just finished another book called Drink Like a Geek, and that's coming out in September. Hmm. So and that's more of like a pop culture drinking book. Okay. So it's kind of the geekier side of drinking, whether you're into Star Wars or Star Trek or... <laughs> <laughs> the Walking Dead. I mean, it's sort of the crossovers there with with drinking. So really? that, that'll come out. But, but yeah, my, my big project right now is getting this magazine up and running. So mm, right. So and also, I think you have you, you make short films as well. Oh yeah! Wow, you really yeah. Really I did research. Research. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a while. I mean, I I do still do uh, travel drinking videos like whenever I can. It's been several months since I've put one up, and I have a lot of footage that I need to edit. Um, that hasn't been edited yet. So I, I want to keep doing that. That was, that's sort of been my filmmaking outlet lately. Uh, you know, the drinkable globe was my, my website. So I, I do drinkable globe videos, but before that I've done, um, I've made, I made like one feature film. I made a bunch of documentaries. I made a bunch of short films and stuff like that. Wow. But it's been that sort of filmmaking. It's been nearly, uh, 10 years since I've done that. But. Oh, wow. You're having a lot of fun. <laughs> I am. I am. Uh, yeah. That's like, it's great that you love what you do and that's how things come up. Yeah. No, that's, uh, that's, that's key because, you know, it's, you got to love what you do, especially if you're not getting rich off of it. Like I'm not. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're rich in your heart as well. I as, am. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. So where can we find your updates? Like all those things that you're doing. Where okay. Uh, you can, well, my website is drinkableglobe.com. Uh, and you can also follow me on Twitter and that's at Jeff Cialetti. My name is spelled C I O L E T T I. Uh, on Instagram, it's Drinkable Globe, um, and uh, again, keep an eye out for the the American Craft Spirits Association digital magazine, which doesn't have a name yet. So hopefully, within the next couple of weeks, we're finally gonna wow. have a name. Um, and yeah, just just um, all the usual social media places. I, I think I I'm always posting updates. I 
do Instagram stories on Drinkable Globe. So um, that's really the best way to find me. Okay, so I'll keep my, my eye on you, and then I'll be. Oh, I forgot I have a podcast too. Okay. Oh yeah. <laughs> could I not oh yeah, that's right. That's right. I listen to them. <laughs> yeah. I forgot my. Yeah, I'm, I'm really good at promoting myself. I did. <laughs> I, I, I have a Drinkable Globe podcast. Mm. Uh, you know, ideally it comes out every other week. Um, sometimes I push that a little bit, but the, the idea is that it's every other week. It's, it's just, you know, I try to do drinking tied in with travel. So mm. I always, it's like drinking with a sense of place. So I talk to a lot of people in the, in the drinks world and, you know, give me thoughts on whether, where they're from places they've traveled, that sort of thing too. Mm. So, um, but yeah, I've got, I've done about, um, 17 episodes of that so far and that's been a lot of fun you can also find that um you can get it on the website but it's also on itunes stitcher soundcloud so it's kind of yeah i i listened to a couple episodes it's like you know like cool talk you relax and it's really fun so all right so thank this was fun too yeah (laughs) thank you well you have to come back oh i definitely will thank you yeah so uh but thank you for joining us today well thank you thank Thank you so much for having me this has been amazing yeah all right so listeners um just because not just informative but fun to read so i highly recommend to check that out so again the book is uh, the psychopedia a non-traditional guide to japan's traditional beverage and where can we buy, buy the book oh all the usual places um i would say um since i'm if you want to get it online i'm a fan of going to indie bound because they support small independent bookstores but you know, obviously, if you wanted to save a little money, you can always go to Amazon, mm. and because they obviously will undercut everybody. But there have been a lot of bookstores that have been really, really good to me. So I, I really like to support the the independent bookstores. I mean, I know um, I, I'm not going to name them all, but um, you know, there's a couple culinary bookstores out in California that are carrying it that have been really good. There's there's one in San Francisco called Omnivore. There's another one in L.A. called um, Now Serving. Uh, there's Fountain Books in Richmond has been really good to me. Um, Words Book in Maplewood, New Jersey. Just you know, these are some of them. But but anyway, you can you don't have to get them specifically from them. You can get uh, Indie Bound, and then Indie Bound basically orders them from indie bookstores. But, cool. So. I, yeah, and it's like I like the size. It's uh, thin, small, but so much inside so <laughs> yeah it's easier for me to carry than my other books and i i like that so. right. okay so listeners you can carry it to your favorite sake bar yeah, <laughs> or exactly. Japanese restaurant. all right so um if you have any questions or comments about the show or suggestions for uh show topics or the guests please contact us at japanese at heritage video network.org or kikwatam.com Japan Needs is uh, live at 3 p.m. on Mondays and always available at heritageradionetwork.org, uh, iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify as a podcast. Our engineer is Matt Patterson, and thank you for listening. I'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebrationing happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. And connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, 
tell your friends, and please join the HRM family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.